Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This will not be my victory alone or our victory alone. It'll be a victory for the American people. For our democracy, for America. And there will be no blue states and red states when we win. Just the United States of America. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And, well, it's over. But it's not over. After months of high drama, the US presidential election finally took place, but so much remains uncertain. President Trump has filed lawsuits in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and now Georgia. This is an embarrassment to our country. I'm confident we'll emerge victorious. The result has been hanging in the balance. As we record this, it looks like Joe Biden will emerge as the winner. But even if he does, legal challenges from the Trump camp mean it may be a while yet before we can say with absolute certainty who will lead the US from January the 20th next year. That said, we already know quite a lot about the state of America thanks to this election. We know it's polarised and we know Trumpism remains a force in the land, even if Biden is the next president. So, what does it all mean for Europe? That's what we'll explore in this special edition of the podcast. We've gathered an all-star cast of political reporters to give you our take on the implications for transatlantic relations and the impact on politics and politicians across the continent. And later in this episode, you'll hear from an old friend of the podcast in the United States, Ryan Heath, host of our ongoing miniseries, Campaign Confidential. But first, let's debate what we know thus far with our podcast panel. So joining us for this uh, virtual roundtable, going from the top to the bottom of my uh, screen here, Lily Beyer, our uh, Brussels politics reporter. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. Uh, David Herzenhorn, chief Brussels correspondent. Hi, David. Hey there. Uh, Sarah Wheaton, our senior health reporter. Hi, Sarah. Good morning. And Matt Karnichnik, chief Europe correspondent in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Howdy. So hopefully all of us can bring uh, the perspective of of looking at this from Europe, but also with uh, quite a bit of experience in the US. I think we've all uh, lived and worked uh, in the US at some point. So we'll try and kind of bring all that to bear. Uh, And I should say we are doing that thing, the the Journalistic High Wire Act, where we are talking before we know for sure what the result is, and we will try and take account of that. But um, in general, assume what seems to be the most likely scenario in that it looks like Joe Biden is heading for victory, although it could be very close. And we can already see just the kind of polarised backdrop to this whole election and the aftermath, um, which is certainly uh, not going to disappear. So let's just start by getting some some initial reaction, just get a flavour from 
each of you uh, from your patches, if you like. What have people been saying? How have they been reacting to the result and also to the very polarised atmosphere around it, to Donald Trump, you know, already launching legal challenges, talking about the election being stolen despite uh, offering no evidence to back that up? David, let's start from you, you know, in the corridors of power and and Brussels and, and, you know, among EU leaders, who's been speaking out and, and what have they been saying? Well, the top EU leaders have been very cautious about this uh, leading up to and even through the initial counting. But the high uh, representative for foreign policy, Joseph Borrell, issued a, a moderate statement saying, of course, the EU is ready to work with anyone. But we do know that quietly they have been hoping, praying, rooting for Joe Biden. Uh, there's just no mistaking the fact that transatlantic relations have been at a low Donald Trump calling the EU a foe, you know, at deep odds with leaders like Angela Merkel, uh, you know, who has hero status throughout most of Europe, if not always in her own home country. So no question that they are looking at the map and hoping these states get certified as blue Biden states, but also cautious. And then you see some who are out of office. Uh, one of uh, Joseph Burrell's predecessors, Javier Solana, tweeting last night the minute that Michigan was called for Biden. And you realize that Europeans still do care a whole lot about what happens in the US, even if they pretend not to sometimes. Yeah, the world really is uh, watching. Sarah, what about the health world, if you like? I mean, obviously, a lot of your uh, attention this year has been focused on the pandemic. That is, you know, the big story of the year, if you like. So uh, organisations such as the World Health Organisation, how are people viewing this election? Well, I pay a lot of attention to Geneva and people there are also glued to their TV. I'm sure CNN International's ratings are reaching their four-year peak right now. And not only in the World Health Organization, but I think also in the World Trade Organization, people are just praying for Trump to lose because he has basically ground a lot of things to a halt there. So it's well known that he has started the process of removing the United States from the World Health Organization, and that would take full effect in July. So if Biden becomes president, poof, not a problem anymore. U.S. funding goes back, no threat to the U.S. staffers who have a disproportionate role at the WHO. And likewise, um, the United States has been doing many things to kind of gum up the works at the World Trade Organization. They're trying to right now block the new kind of consensus leader of the World Trade Organization. They also have been gumming up the sort of adjudicating body there. So Geneva is basically frozen right now and will be able to move forward under a Biden administration. And a lot of these multilateral organizations just won't be able to work very well if he continues. Right. Matt, what about the reaction from, from Germany? I was quite struck by how kind of forward-leaning it's been. You know, the defence minister, Annegret kramp karrenbauer was on morning TV, you know, talking kind of like an analyst, I thought, of the US. And uh, we had a, a statement from the foreign minister, Heiko Maas. What's the, what's the general mood in Berlin? Well, I've been getting a lot of friendly advice uh, from Germans on, on how to run a democracy, which I always enjoy. And I think the general sense here is that it's a chaotic situation in the U.S. at the moment. But, you know, I think it's a bit shrill, to be honest, because what we're seeing play out there is is really not out of the ordinary. This is a very close election. We've had a lot of close elections in the United States. If you think back to 2000, for example, what happened in Sarah's home state of Florida, 
overnight, I think a lot of people were a, a bit shocked to see what was going on uh, in, in my home state of Arizona, in fact, in the county where I was born, in Maricopa County, where you had a large group of people gathering outside the building where they were counting the votes, waving Trump flags. It was peaceful. There weren't any incidents. But I think to many European eyes, and, and particularly to German eyes, maybe, that kind of thing is is quite shocking. So I think that there's a lot of unease here. You do hear senior German politicians, particularly from Angela Merkel's party, warning that there could be unrest. But, you know, I think we just have to wait for the count. And uh, again, this is not the first time that we've been in a situation like this. I think a lot of it is just driven by the fact that this is a, a very, very close race at the moment. Yeah. Lily, we have uh, you on board in part to make sure we don't skew to uh, Western European. You watch uh, Central and Eastern Europe uh, very closely for us. You used to be based in Budapest. And the reaction uh, there has been quite interesting. Perhaps um, give us a couple of examples, starting with uh, the Slovenian Prime Minister. Minister. So we, we did have a Slovenian prime minister becoming very, very vocal on U.S. politics yesterday, basically congratulating the Republicans and saying, uh, in essence, that uh, Donald Trump has won the election. He later tried to row that back a bit. But uh, of course, uh, First Lady Melania Trump is originally from Slovenia. That plays a bit of a role. The prime minister of Slovenia himself is also quite a, a nationalist. Um, he's very anti migration. So he does have some ideological similarities with uh, Mr. Trump. But from the rest of the region, what we've seen is a very um, uneasy quiet. Uh, for Hungary and Poland, it really matters who is in the White House in the sense that Joe Biden has publicly criticized Hungary and Poland. He has spoken out against LGBT free zones in Poland. He has raised some concerns about democracy in the region. So if he wins, we can expect relations between the White House and Budapest and Warsaw to be a lot frostier. And we can expect the State Department to once again Again, become more vocal about problems uh, or perceived problems, depending on how you look at it, in the region. However, the really important thing to remember is that whoever's in the White House doesn't change the fact that the U.S. is still the guarantor of Central European security. And even for someone like Prime Minister Viktor Orban in Hungary, who is a very vocal Trump supporter, a big reason why he's being quiet right now is because he knows that regardless of who wins, Hungary will have to work with that person on, on NATO issues and so on. And he is very experienced. He's been in politics for three decades and he knows to be pragmatic when he needs to. So they won't be happy if Trump loses, but it does seem like they are preparing for that. Hey, Matt, let me jump back to you. You wrote a, a piece uh, yesterday uh, where you suggested that regardless of who ends up winning here, and as we say uh, at the moment, as we record, it looks like it will be Biden, that Europe is the loser. What was your uh, thinking behind that? Well, first of all, I think we need to remember, we need to count all the votes, Andrew. Let's not jump the yeah, gun. Absolutely. Let's every vote, every vote counts. Well, that's why I'm, I'm uh, being careful with the caveats. So unfortunate thing for the Europeans here is that there isn't a clear mandate 
in the way that many people have been hoping. And I think it's also something that has frustrated a lot of Democrats in the United States who were hoping for a blowout victory to really repudiate Trump and the last four years. And that's not what we're seeing. Even if, if Biden wins, it will, it will be, at least according to the Electoral College calculation, a fairly slim victory. And I think for Europe, what that means is that Biden will, will not be able to pursue a, an aggressive reform agenda because he's not going to have the support of the Senate. The Democrats, it looks like right now, will, will not take control of the Senate which is would be absolutely crucial for any president to kind of push through an aggressive legislative agenda. And what this has led to in the United States is that the, the president tends to rely on executive orders to push through uh, his agenda. But these orders are, are very ephemeral. As soon as the person is voted out of office, the next president comes in and basically undoes everything that he did. And as I pointed out in the article, I mean, this is this is what happened with the Iran nuclear deal, which was something that was sort of very dear to the hearts of the Europeans. And it's what happened also with the Paris Climate Accord, both of which Trump pulled out of after get, becoming president. It would have been much more difficult for him to do those things had they been legitimized by the uh, US Congress. Mm. David, you used to cover Congress. Uh, how important, uh, this is a thing I think sometimes from outside, it's it's easy to uh, underestimate how big a role Congress plays, uh, not just in domestic policy, but in certain aspects of of foreign policy. So how big a deal is it if Biden wins and if the Democrats don't gain a majority in the Senate? Where does that kind of tie his hands? Well, to quote a maybe soon former president, it's just huge, right? There's a reason why our colleagues in the US, uh, their top headline on the Politico site was that Joe Biden looks screwed even if he wins. Without democratic control of the Senate, let alone the 60 votes that are usually needed to overcome procedural hurdles, the filibuster, his agenda is stuck, paralyzed. I mean, the Democrats leading up to the election, the polls were uh, were wrong. They were predicting, you know, this blue wave that would give them clear control of the Senate. And their hopes now seem to be pinned on uh, two races in Georgia, uh, races that they would never be expected to win, one that they're uh, clearly behind in, one that's going to a runoff. So this is a very rough result. Same across uh, on the other side of the Capitol, where they were talking about, you know, an expansion of the House majority. I uh, mentioned the, the majority in, uh, that Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker, enjoys in the House, which also appears to have shrunk. Again, that will make legislating all the harder. But also, we may now see a real change in evolution in the Democratic Party. Uh, the leadership in on both sides of Congress are, are very old. There has not been a lot of new blood showing in the Democratic Party. And what this smaller majority in the House would do is empower some of the very dynamic new liberals uh, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, others who may now push, even maybe challenge uh, Pelosi for leadership, but it may push the Democratic Party more to the left, uh, given the overall result. Well, yeah, to, to David's point about the potential for gridlock in Congress, that sounds like it could just be a domestic American issue, but there are going to be obvious ways that that's going to affect the rest of the world, even just a really basic thing like a stimulus package in the United States. Uh, lawmakers were not able to agree on one ahead of the election. There's maybe a little more hope now that the election's over because neither the, neither side will see it as a way to boost the other side's prospects. But the bottom line is that the American economy is still a pretty dominant force in the world. The other thing to keep in mind, regardless of who wins, is 
even if Biden wins, uh, he won't take office until January 20th. And that means that Trump is going to continue to direct the American response to the coronavirus pandemic through the worst phase of this third wave that the U.S. seems to be having right now. And that's going to basically create a domino effect. If he continues to handle it as poorly as he has up to this point, then American cases will continue to grow. And Europe has been trudging along without American tourism dollars through an entire season. We'll now potentially see not only the winter, but also the spring and summer seasons lost also because Americans will be too sick to be allowed onto the continent. So again, that that will play out regardless of the election result. I'm curious to see how, how much the Europeans will miss American tourists over the summers as much as they'll uh, miss, miss their money. But I, I, I did just want to echo something that Sarah said about the impact that this will have on Europe, which is that the other aspect here is that because Biden looks like he's kind of going to win by the skin of his nose, if that's what happens, what that means is that it's very unclear what's going to happen four years from now, meaning that, you know, this kind of revolution that many people were hoping for with the Democrats coming in in force and locking arms with the Europeans on some kind of an environmental agenda, on maybe even a new push towards a transatlantic trade pact, on somehow redefining NATO and the transatlantic military alliance. Seems like most of that will have gone out the window because it'll be very difficult, I think, to argue in Europe that, you know, it's worth all of this effort not knowing that you might end up with another Trump-like figure four years from now. So I, I think it kind of puts everything in this kind of long-term uh, limbo here, potentially, that uh, is going to be very uh, counterproductive from a European point of view. Anyway. Okay, and while we're talking about Europe, I should uh, don my British hat for a moment just to say that obviously the UK remains part of uh, of Europe. Uh, I would recommend people read a very good uh, piece that my colleague uh, Charlie Cooper uh, wrote about the particular implications of a Biden presidency if it happens after every vote has been counted uh, for the UK. And I think the interesting aspects there are... You could become are- the 51st state, Andrew. That's yeah, awesome. well, yeah, or or maybe Scotland could be, you know, because that is another thing that you know that a president Biden might have to deal with, or indeed a second term uh, president Trump. Uh, you know, a great tension in terms of the future of the United Kingdom and the possibility of another independence referendum in Scotland, with the pro independence camp being, you know, uh, strongly in the lead at the moment. But uh, that's another issue. But I guess on the UK front, it seemed to me there are two key points from Charlie's piece, which was one that um, the personal dynamics with the Johnson administration may not be great if there is a Biden administration in the White House. I think particularly uh, veterans of the Obama administration did not appreciate some of uh, Boris Johnson's comments uh, about Obama himself. But I think on uh, the kind of policy issues, particularly on security, for example, you know, there continues to be a big interest on both sides in cooperation. So I suspect if they can kind of smooth over the uh, the personal dynamics, you know, you could still see a pretty strong relationship between, you know, the UK and the US. But Lily, uh, let's bring you in again at this stage. We were thinking about kind of winners and losers in Europe as a result of this election. Can you think of any particularly in Central and Eastern Europe? I think that if Biden wins, the biggest loser in the region would definitely be Viktor Orban. 
it would be uh, good for us to look back a bit and remember that under the previous democratic administration, there were actually visa bans on Hungarian officials over corruption allegations. Hungarian officials, several of them, were banned from entering the United States. So relations were incredibly tense. And I think we can expect something a bit similar moving forward. And I see it when I see how deeply interested Uh, a lot of Hungarians are in this election, even live blogs on pro-government news portals. But there is very intense interest because they see this election is also having an impact on domestic politics and on Victor, Victor Orban's position, because one thing he has been able to play up domestically is his relationship or perceived relationship with Donald Trump. He has claimed that uh, he has been able to win respect for Hungary in the United States, um, that Hungary is as, as a big player, and that his views are taken seriously abroad, that he is not an isolated pariah, but that, you know, big leaders like Donald Trump share his vision uh, for the future of the global order. And I think it's very important for him domestically and would be quite a blow if that is gone and he doesn't get uh, invitations to the White House in the future. Right, it'll be interesting. He's always got Putin. Yeah, well, there maybe, yeah, time to put, time to pivot. But Andrew, I want to come back on one, one aspect in which Europe may come out a winner here, which is I think that European countries are looking at their parliamentary democratic systems, including in the UK, which is a parliamentary democracy, and then looking across the ocean at the US, where right now, let's keep with in mind- With a lot of envy. With a lot of envy, yeah, sure. With, with Biden always. now up 3.6 million votes in the, in the popular vote. I mean, this would be the third US election if for some reason Trump uh, ends up winning it, where the popular vote goes against, uh, the, you know, the, the, who becomes actually president. And it just bewilders people to see. I mean, this is a, this is in some ways not by the skin of his teeth at all. You, you may see a, a margin in the popular vote that is upwards of 4 million. Uh, that's not a close election in most countries. I mean, in fact, it's way bigger than the entire population of Slovenia. Yeah, but that, that's, how you know, system, that's how the system yeah, is but designed. The, but this, well, this is what I'm saying. And the Europeans will look at that and say, hey, you know, the way they do this makes a lot more sense that if, okay, you know... But who, who voted for Giuseppe Conte? Who voted for Ursula von der Leyen? I mean, I, I, I always find that a <laughs> no, little bit No, I'm talking about rich. the countries themselves. Yeah, well, the thing is, you know, also... This, this the, is, you're talking again, about 3.6 million people is more than the population of Slovenia. Well, right? as we know, in Slovenia is very much the new center of gravity in the, in the U.S. presidential and uh, U.S. <laughs> presidential politics. But uh, also, I, I would say probably I can imagine some of our British listeners, uh, you know, there's a long running debate about the fairness of the of the UK parliamentary system, which uses this first past the post system. That means you can get a big parliamentary uh, majority on, you know, about 40% of the vote. So I guess there, there are these issues, but they do all come to the fore, right? When suddenly a big election is front and center and people start to think about their own systems. Yeah, until the other side wins though, right? I mean, all of this talk about the electoral college is going to go out the window again if Biden wins. You know, I mean, this is the thing is that uh, there's all of this sort of, you know, woe is me, we need to change the system until, you know, the Democrats win again. And assuming that that happens, we'll see. I mean, you know what, there's also there's no reason that they can't change the system. It's possible to reform it. None of this stuff is etched in stone. So, I mean, I just think that, you know, one thing that, uh, as you might notice, kind of gets my goat a little bit, is that, you know, this is a democratic tradition in the United States that's over 200 years old. It can be changed. But I think that, you know, this is the reason that Americans respect the system, they'll respect the result. And, you know, it was designed to create this regional balance 
that exists. And, and as somebody from one of these flyover states, I'm glad that we have the electoral well, it's, college. It's I'm glad that it's not. But the, you have to admit now, Matt, that it's gotten crazy. I mean, the fact that Maine divides it, it, Maine divides up its votes, Nebraska divides up its votes, but everybody yeah, else but does it. The federal system, you know, right? Those are, those are states. They can decide how they system. want to do it. Yeah. I mean, they're the ones who, who can decide that. And that's why I don't think that this is Supreme Court will decide this at the end of the day. It'll be the state. You can tell who our Germany-based correspondent you is. You could say who the uh, you could say it's the U.S. equivalent of qualified majority voting, right? Where where sort of there's weighting by 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 kind of country and and uh, smaller countries get a little bit of a boost. Anyway, I wanted to bring up one thing after Lily was talking again about Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, just something that I think may be of interest, a region that's close to my heart, uh, the Balkans. And I do think, obviously, uh, a President Biden is going to have a lot on his plate, but. Um, I think in the region, there would be great interest in a Biden presidency because you would have someone in the White House for the first time in a long time who actually knows the region very well. Biden visited Bosnia during the war. When I first ran across him, he was visiting uh, Pristina. I think it was in uh, the US government office before it was called an embassy in Pristina about 20 years ago. He knows the region very well. And a lot of the people in his uh, foreign policy orbit, if you like, his foreign policy circle, also have close connections to uh, the region. Samantha Power, you know, former UN ambassador, started out as a as a stringer as a journalist in in Bosnia in the mid 90s and um as we know there's a lot uh, on any new US president's plate but i think all of us who cover politics generally also know that if uh, someone has a personal interest or connection to an issue somehow that rises up the agenda so we we'll have to see who the people are who are involved but um I suspect in Belgrade, uh, they are definitely... Didn't Trump just end the war there? Andrew? Well, that's interesting. Yeah, maybe we can play in that clip, which he used on the campaign trail, uh, declaring that, uh, you know, uh, Kosovo Albanians and Serbs were... one of his were, great successes. Uh, yeah, we're, we're kissing and hugging, thanks to uh, his uh, intervention. And you know what? It took about 20 minutes. They've been fighting for 40 years. I think they've been fighting for 400 years, you want to know the truth. But they've been fighting for a long time. They want to make a deal. All of a sudden, two months ago, they're in the Oval Office hugging the two prime minister, hugging and kissing and thanking Greg. Um, There's nothing more for Biden to do. Actually, the uh, actually the war ended 20 years ago, but it is a frozen conflict. There is, uh, you know, still a desire to find a, a final settlement, which is actually important for both sides and for their long term aspirations of, of of joining the EU one day. And uh, it would be interesting to see. Uh, you know, I do think we would see a much more kind of coordinated US EU approach, but. Um, Already the Biden campaign has put out, you know, some quite strong language saying they would end the current unbalanced approach, which was a pretty clear uh, reference or a pretty clear signal that they think the current policy has been too much weighted in favour of Belgrade. So we'll see how how uh, that plays out. But in terms of winners and losers, Matt, do you have any thoughts on who does well and who does not so well out of this in, in, in Europe? Well, I think that if Biden wins that the Germans will actually be much better off than they are right now, for example, because they've borne the brunt of a lot of uh, Trump's uh, anti-European rhetoric and, and actions. But in any case, I think that, that Germany will be very relieved and, and much better off in a lot of ways because the trade issues that are on the table now that I think will continue with Biden in terms of the negotiations that are going on. But, I, you know, the, the entire tone will be much less hostile. And so I think that the Germans will definitely benefit. And um, I agree with what uh, Lily said, you know, about Central Europe. I mean, this was a also a way over the past years, I think, for the Central Europeans to create a kind of counterweight to Brussels by having this strong tie to Washington. And 
went beyond Hungary, I think, you know, to, to Poland in particular, but, you know, also countries like Austria. We saw Sebastian Kurz visiting Washington and Mike Pompeo coming to Vienna recently. It was the first bilateral visit by a U.S. Secretary of State in decades. So, you know, I think that will probably end if Biden wins and that uh, the Democrats will kind of restore the traditional focus in the transatlantic relationship on the kind of uh, Washington, Berlin, Brussels access. Sarah, in terms of, you know, the the handling of the pandemic, you know, it, it doesn't feel like it's been particularly joined up on, on a global scale. Do you think that would change much, even, even if Biden, you know, takes off the table the idea of leaving the World Health Organization, you know, in kind of concrete terms, do you think we might see a kind of more more global approach? Honestly, no. I think we'd see more rhetoric about teaming up and and maybe better sharing of information, of expertise. But for the same reason that we see European countries struggle to align on health policy, I, I think in reality, national politicians are accountable to their citizens and to nobody else. So aside from the sort of rhetorical desire to, for example, make sure that poor countries get access to vaccines, which Europe has said they want to do in contrast to the United States, we actually haven't really heard Biden campaign very much on sharing vaccines with the rest of the world. And and ultimately, you know, it will be in Biden's interest if he becomes president to show the U.S. that he can he can cure Americans first. And that actually brings me to a thought that I had about sort of Europe's role in its own destiny. Me, for example, in the health sphere, I, I hear more talk about European health sovereignty. We've hear, heard other things about industrial sovereignty. And that's an area where I wonder if actually a Biden presidency will do more long-term harm than good to the point that some others have made already. We might just see another Trump-like figure in four to eight years you know, I think there's an argument that Could there's sort Trump. of permanent damage. <laughs> exactly. Maybe Trump Jr. You know, so, so Trump-like um, that it's actually Trump. There may be some permanent damage to sort of the transatlantic relationship or the multilateral system. And we have heard rhetoric from European leaders about, you know, Ursula von der Leyen has said she wants to create a European biomedical research agency. So we're not dependent on American research. We've heard other areas where, you know, they want to return various production things to the continent. And I wonder if a Biden presidency would allow leaders to justify just kicking the can down the road rather than lay the groundwork for real changes that may need to be made over the coming decades. Mm. Has anyone got any quick final points they would like to mention? David, do you want to? Do you want to? Well, the the one thing would be to keep in mind uh, that Donald Trump, even if he loses, may not disappear. In fact, four years from now, he would be just a year older than Joe Biden is at this point. In fact, folks need to remember how rare it is to oust an incumbent president in the United States. Even Richard Nixon uh, won a second term. He, he won a landslide, uh, but he won it. So if this is a Biden victory, and given the intense passions, we not only could see a Trump-like figure, as Matt suggested, uh, we could see Trump himself just refusing to fade from the scene. There's really a lot of uncertainty about where this is going to go uh, in American politics. Mm. Lily? Uh, one thing that I found very interesting is that even though the U.S. is becoming more and more inward looking and, you know, if, if you look at U.S. politics and I talk to, to friends and family over there, you know, they're, they're very much focused on domestic issues. And yet, 
in Europe, if you talk to people in, in Brussels or Budapest or elsewhere, um, they're so obsessed with this election. They talk as though they're Americans. They talk about, you know, counties and yeah, they know the way the votes counties. are being counted. Yeah, they even know the counties. Um, so there is a bit of a disconnect. For American voters, this election is very much about them. And for the rest of the world, it's about a lot more than just the U.S. Mm, good point. Matt, any final thoughts? Well, just to follow up on what David and Lily just said, I think that the problem for Europe here as well, for people who are very concerned about Trumpism, is that this election shows that it's not going anywhere, that even if he loses, as it looks like now, there are still millions and millions of people who embrace this approach. Many people in Europe were hoping for a repudiation, which would have also had a an impact, I think, on the um, populism that we've seen in in Europe in in, in recent years. And uh, you know, this this doesn't necessarily bode well for the political culture on either side of the Atlantic. Okay, well, on that uh, not exactly cheerful note, I think we'll have to. Uh draw it to a close I'm sure we'll talk much more about this in the in the weeks and months ahead uh, but for now Lily David Sarah Matt thanks very much thanks thank, thank you. you so that's the views of our pan-European panel now let's cross the Atlantic and join our old uh, podcast pal Ryan Heath hi Ryan how are you great to be joining you Andrew give us a feel I guess just your overall impressions because you you know dived into this race you moved to the States what about a year ago or something now You've been following every twist and turn. It's finally happened, although, you know, it is by no means over. So, you know, what kind of jumps out at you when you take a step back? What are your kind of overall impressions? We're living now in parallel Americas. Uh, the two parties conducted their campaigns in parallel. They talk and they live in parallel increasingly. You see people sorting themselves into blue and red counties and communities. You didn't even see them vote the same way. Um, the campaigns obviously reach them in different ways. And I think that it's a bit of a cliche to talk about uh, healing and America being united. But that is going to be a big uh, topic of discussion. People are going to have to find ways to live with their neighbors and talk to them in new ways. I'm not sure they're going to be able to find easy compromises. Uh, people have dramatically different worldviews, but you can't successfully live in bubbles forever. And so I think that is something that's going to be on the minds of a lot of people. And if Biden wins, as we're expecting at this point, he's certainly framing his um, coming presidency in those terms. It's all about, I will act on behalf of all Americans. I will listen to all Americans, etc. And taking things in a very cautious way. That's obviously a very different tone to Trump. We don't know if he'll succeed in uniting people, but uh, he's going to have to make an ongoing effort, I think. Obviously, here in Europe, everyone is, you know, desperate to know or figure out what uh, the outcome means for Europe. But I just wonder how much, I mean, as you say, at the moment, we're assuming uh, Biden win, although it's not yet certain. But even setting that aside, I mean, how much do you think kind of foreign policy figured in the campaign and will figure in the thoughts of Biden or even if it's Trump in, in another term, given it just feels like the whole thing was kind of so domestically focused to a large extent. It feels like America is quite introspective at the moment in a lot of ways. It you know, has a lot to think about itself. So how much was that an issue in the campaign and how much can Europe and, you know, and other parts of the world expect to have in the way of American attention over the next few years? 
foreign policy was a factor, just not in the ways that a lot of people expected. I think most of us who thought about that issue would have said, well, China and America's relationship and rivalry with China would be the big factor. And it didn't really work out that way. I think for Biden to present himself as someone who wanted to reestablish norms and work with allies, uh, that was something that was comforting to the, the 75 to 80 million people who have gone and voted for him. And that was often code for the West and for Europe and this transatlantic alliance. So even if it wasn't directly stated, it's what was meant. And I think a lot of people understood that. At the same time, Trump made very explicit appeals to stop socialism in America. And that was aimed at Latino communities. Uh, the foils there were Latin American strongmen and, and basically suggesting that Joe Biden would turn America into Venezuela or Cuba. And that clearly had some effect in some of those key races. And I'm talking about Florida, which Trump has won, and Texas, which there had been a lot of talk about that turning blue. And Joe Biden just failed in a lot of the south of Texas. He went backwards, not forwards. Forwards. And a lot of that had to do with this socialism messaging. I mean, one of the things, even even if President Trump doesn't end up winning, is that, uh, you know, he got a lot of people out there voting for him. And that block, if you like, is a very, very substantial slice of America. What, what effect does all of that have in how America will engage with the world in the years to come, even if Trump ends up not being the winner? Yeah. Trump is like Hotel California. Even if a majority of Americans have decided to check out, he's not going anywhere. There's no leaving. Uh, 75 million people still support Trump. The Republicans are almost certainly going to control the Senate, and that's going to put constraints on what comes out of Washington, and it's going to mean a validation of Trump amongst many of those people. So you aren't going back to some old country club version of republicanism. That's not going to happen. It may mean that the right in America fractures at some point, uh, but for the time being, it's going to feel very similar. Uh, we're just going to take less notice of Donald Trump's Twitter if he's not in the White House. Hmm. So let's assume a Biden presidency and maybe even imagine you were back in, in one of your old jobs inside the European Commission. You know, what would you be advising European politicians, European leaders to kind of do and say to engage and get the attention of a Biden administration? I would focus it on three things. I would say climate, climate, climate is number one. Uh, if Europe and a Biden administration don't work together on climate, it's just not going to work out for the world in the way that the EU would like. So this is their, their opportunity. He might be a one-term president. You've got to dive in on day one. Uh, the other area of common interest would be tech, just because the world's biggest tech companies are so big. If there isn't coordination transatlantically, the idea of uh, a more effective form of regulation, um, and whether you want that to happen or not, if it's going to happen, it should at least actually be functional, that's going to require coordination. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you're going to still see pressure from the US for Europeans to defend themselves uh, more on their own terms with their own money. The tone's going to be different, but the outcome and the goal from America isn't really going to be different. So there needs to be a sense of reality at the European end about that. And I would be making some kind of peace offering there so that the, the tone stays on the long-term track that the EU would like. Hmm. Wanted to mention Campaign Confidential and all the episodes that you and our producer Christina put together there, which are still a kind of great primer on a lot of the issues that uh, affected this campaign. Are there any that particularly stood out for you, you know, things that you explored in the course of that series where you thought, yeah, that kind of came back with a vengeance, that's, that's become a big topic now? 
Uh, I would say probably the role of suburban women in the Midwest states that Biden has clearly got back into his column. That's been absolutely critical to him winning those states. But one thing that we had talked about in that episode was the changing nature of the suburbs in places like Georgia and Texas and other states. And when you look at the exit polling numbers, it turns out that Trump did better overall um, with white women far better, actually, than he did in the 2016 election. So if there was a trend in the suburbs, it was not a national trend. And and that that's really interesting to see. Trump actually succeeded in, in doing better with a lot of minority groups and, and, and has locked in large parts of that base. And that's why I think it's going to take a long time for some kind of like broader realignment to, to happen. People were jumping the gun there, I think. Mm. What about the whole issue of mail-in voting and balloting? I hesitate to, to even raise it because it's obviously become so highly charged, but you, you dived into that and there may be a lot of people who are only now just kind of tuning into this and wondering why such a fuss is being made about it. Can you give them the kind of potted need-to-know yep. summary? You're right, actually. I'm going to retract my previous answer and say mail-in voting is the, the big trend of this election. Uh, it's a needlessly partisan issue, and I think people, as they follow online and the final vote counts, need to understand that the reason why most of the delays are occurring now in the count aren't because there's something fundamentally wrong with mail voting um, or even the election officials themselves. It's that in a lot of states, they were prevented from beginning to process those ballots before voting ended. And that was the choice, by and large, of Republican state legislatures. It's not what election officials wanted. Journalists warned for months that this was going to be a problem. And it's worked out basically exactly as predicted. But now you have a kind of faux outrage from some of these politicians that it's a sign of fraud um, and people trying to reverse engineer whatever rationale is going to explain why the vote isn't going their way when it's actually just really simple. Uh, you need to give people more time to process these ballots. And Americans did vote with their feet. While Democrats were more interested to vote by mail than Republicans, the huge turnout is mostly down to the fact that people had more ways to vote and more time to do it. And that ultimately has to be a good thing for democracy if you're getting more voices heard. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of heat at the moment around this. But at the end of the day, politicians can't afford to anger clear majorities uh, in their constituencies. And, and people are saying on both sides that they like the new way the election is being conducted, even if they're a bit confused by the way the counting is now happening. Great. Um, you mentioned turnout there, uh, you know, record high turnout. So maybe if we kind of end on an upbeat note, uh, what do you make of that? And what does it uh, say if it's not too grand a question about, you know, the state of American democracy? I think we're still figuring that out, but it's a good thing that 160 million people have had their voices heard. There's a lot of laceration at the moment of how pollsters got some of the numbers wrong. Democrats feel disappointed that they didn't win a landslide. Republicans are obviously freaking out that they might be losing the White House. But what we're going to learn is what 40 million people think about their country. And we didn't hear that before because they'd never voted before this election. And it's going to take time to process that. But but that's a really great thing. And in a democracy, we get to hear it. We don't know what people thought of four years of Xi Jinping because there's no opinion polling and there's no election in China. But the US does have that. And we should all take some time to learn some things from that data. Great. And you'll be back with another uh, campaign confidential to, to wrap everything up next week, right? Once once everybody's Absolutely. had some I'm sleep. the Hotel California too. You're never getting rid of me. 
<laughs> yeah, at least not next week. Anyway, we encourage people to go and still listen to those uh, back issues and also to listen to your, um, you know, more considered uh, conclusions once you've had a bit more sleep uh, in the coming days. Thanks very much, Ryan. Thank you, Andrew. And that's all the time we have on this extended episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And remember that you can always send us feedback or ideas for guests or topics. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. As we mentioned, Ryan will be back with another Campaign Confidential on Tuesday. And we'll be back on Thursday with the regular EU Confidential crew, including Reem, who'll be back from a short break. Until then, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. A special thanks to the hardest working producer in show business, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.